Hmm. Looks like it's that time again. It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of August 31st, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. This week's program started out as kind of a bad attitude, grumpy program. But there is a happy ending, or at least a happy middle. As much as I like the way AVG antivirus works, I was really seriously thinking about replacing it earlier in August. AVG still isn't really out of the woods. If one more of the company's upgrades wastes another hour of my time, AVG probably will be gone from my machine. And there was another annoyance, a bit disheartening. When I reported the problem to the company's support operation, which at one time was one of the best in the business, there was no reply. None. No explanation, no apology, no indication that the company planned to do anything to resolve the problem. Just silence for a long time. But as I said, stick with me. There's a happy middle. Now, I'm certain that part of the problem I encountered is Vista. But companies that provide antivirus applications should have enough test beds and enough expertise to deal with the current iteration of the operating system, particularly now that Vista's been on the market for more than a year. What happened happened twice. An AVG update caused the application itself to stop working, and it did so in such a way that the only solution involved uninstalling AVG antivirus and then reinstalling it. Total cost in time for the first incident was more than 90 minutes because I first had to diagnose the problem and then several approaches to fix it didn't work. Finally, I ended up uninstalling and reinstalling. That took about 30 minutes. The first indication that there was a problem was that after I installed the update for AVG antivirus is its icon was no longer present in the tray and the Windows security service showed danger. The second time it happened, I recognized the problem instantly, and I knew what the solution was, so the recovery time was oh, only about 30 or 40 minutes. The trouble with that is that I never have a spare 30 or 40 minutes available to resolve a problem, and I'm particularly annoyed when it's not a problem of my own making. Under Vista, the Windows security system recognizes when the computer is running without any antivirus protection. And it told me that AVG, which had stopped running following the update, had an update available. I tried to run the update, but it just didn't run. I tried running it as administrator. I tried running it from the full administrator account. Nothing. The next time around, after installing yet another update and restarting the machine, I saw what was becoming a familiar problem. AVG reporting trouble and then showing additional components that needed to be updated. But I'd already installed the update, so from this date, the only option I had that works is to uninstall AVG and reinstall it. Well, the second time I'd encountered the problem, so I figured it probably wouldn't take very long. So I installed AVG and it told me that new components are available. Well, I just installed it, I just updated it, that should be it. But this has become normal. So I installed the updates to the updates, and after rebooting, AVG said, there's an update needed. So I installed that update and rebooted. This time I had lost only 15 minutes, or at least that's what I thought. AVG appeared to be running again, except 
that it claimed there was still an update to do. Now, perhaps you might forgive me for thinking that I've fallen into some sort of infinite loop here. The update is complete, but more updates are waiting. Finally, after updating the update to the update, I got green lights everywhere. But another system restart is required, and this is Vista, so that's going to take another three or four minutes. Finally, about 24 minutes after I started working on the problem, AVG was once again running, and the computer was once again protected. On August 17th, I reached out to AVG's home office in the Czech Republic. The AVG media relations person in the Czech Republic replied almost immediately, and the U.S.-based media relations person checked in a few days later. Since then, on August 21st, I heard from Martin Shabesta. He's AVG's head of engineering. In the U.S., his position would be called chief technical officer. Martin explained that the apparent lack of response is a result of AVG's rapidly growing user base. Okay, I can understand that. He said that AVG is in the process of building out the customer service operation, and he believes that the problem will not happen again. AVG provided an application that allowed me to remove the existing version completely, and Shrebesta suggested that I download and install the latest version, which includes a lot of changes. The update from Build 93 to Build 136 involves a lot of changes in AVG, he said, some of them being fairly complex changes in the structure of the application itself. An additional update step and reboot is necessary in order to ensure the proper function of the update mechanism and of AVG 8 itself. This, Shrebesta said, is the reason for the larger than normal number of update steps. Well, I'm happy to report, very happy to report, that so far all of the subsequent updates have progressed without incident. That's good, because I have come to rely on AVG, and the prospect of finding a replacement was not appealing. I can understand how a company with a popular product can be overwhelmed by rapid growth. So, for now, I'm accepting AVG's explanation at face value. I've heard from the occasional Firefox user that Firefox occasionally trips over its tail and forgets all of its stored settings. I've never had this happen, but if it happens to you and you've used Moz Backup, you're not going to feel too bad about it. Or if you have a home computer and an office computer and maybe a laptop computer and you'd like to have the same Firefox settings on all the machines, along with all the extensions, Moz Backup is a pretty easy way to accomplish that deed. When I decided it was time to remove Firefox from my computer so that I could get a clean installation of Firefox 3 after having Firefox 2, Firefox 3 beta, a couple of betas, and the full Firefox 3, and it had gotten a little confused with itself, I first used Moz Backup. It helped me to get back to normal in just a few minutes. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you can take a look at what a Firefox 3 fresh installation looks like. Just a plain screen. Because I had run Moz Backup to capture all of the important settings before uninstalling Firefox, bringing the browser back up to date required only that I had access to the backup file, and that I tell Moz Backup where it is when I run it in the restore mode. About one minute later, I had all of my bookmarks back, all of my stored passwords back, my home page back, actually my home page consists of about a dozen pages, all the extensions that I had installed, the theme I used, and the cookies absolutely everything. You might wonder what could be better. Well, it's free. That makes it even better. Besides backing up Firefox configurations, Moz Backup also handles Thunderbird, so you can safeguard or move your email settings, too. 
This is a free application, but if you find it useful, you might want to make a contribution. The developer will appreciate it. For more information, visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, and you'll find in this week's program a link to the Moz Backup website. Allow me to quote Etta in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I'm 26, and I'm single, and a school teacher, and that's the bottom of the pit, and the only excitement I've known is here with me now, so I'll go with you, and I won't whine. And I'll sew your socks, and I'll stitch you when you're wounded, and I'll do anything you ask of me except one thing. I won't watch you die. I'll miss that scene, if you don't mind. I'm quoting Etta from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, because I wonder if there's much future in this high-tech, plain English biz. I'm beginning to think there probably isn't. Remember when there were a lot of photography magazines? Most of those are gone now. Even the magazines for professionals. Oh, some still exist. But the generalist magazines are mostly gone. So are most of the generalist computer magazines. Remember when there were dozens? I wonder just how long people will continue to read about computer hardware and software as the audience itself becomes as adept at using computers, or perhaps more so, than the journalistic experts same thing happened with the automotive industry. There used to be lots of magazines about cars. Not very many are left. Only for the real hardcore fans. Long term, there's probably not much to look forward to. The questions I receive are increasingly complex. They indicate a growing knowledge. Ten years ago, I could answer most of the questions I received with a stock response off the top of my head. Today, the top of my head not only has no hair but it lacks the answers to most of the questions that are tossed over the transom, assuming I had a transom over which one would toss a question, which I don't. But when those questions come in, increasingly they require that I perform a lot of testing and research. Well, that's good, of course, because every time I'm forced to research something, I learn something. But it's bad because it clearly illustrates the fact that more people have more knowledge about computers than at any time in the past. And actually, that's good, even though it's probably bad for me long-term. It doesn't surprise me, though, but it does suggest that there is a time when programs such as TechBiter Worldwide might be considered, oh no, superfluous. I will try to delay, belay, avoid, and postpone that day as long as possible, of course. But I do know it's coming. In nerdly news, starting in October, Comcast will limit monthly data transfers to 250 gigabytes. Now, at first glance, that seems like a lot, but maybe it isn't. According to Comcast, 250 gigabytes is an extremely large amount of data, much more than a typical residential customer uses on a monthly basis. Well, true. For the feeble providers in the United States, that's very true. In the real world, for example, Europe and Asia, 250 gigabytes might be a day's worth of downloads. Even so, Comcast says the limits are reasonable. To exceed them, a user would need to send or receive 50 million email messages or download more than 60,000 songs or download 125 standard-definition movies or view 25,000 high-resolution digital images. Yes, that does seem like a lot. But at least this finally gives Comcast customers a clue. Until now, Comcast has cut off service to customers who consumed more than their share of bandwidth, according to Comcast. But the company has refused to specify what the limits were. So when you bumped into that imaginary limit, boom, sorry, goodbye. 
So now if you're a Comcast user, at least you know what the limit is. According to Comcast's acceptable use policy, and I quote, If a customer uses more than 250 gigabytes and is one of the top users of our service, he or she may be contacted by Comcast to notify them of excessive use. At the time, we'll tell them exactly how much data per month they had used. We know from experience the vast majority of customers we ask to curb usage do so voluntarily. Comcast says it will display banner notices on its website and it will include an insert in an upcoming billing statement. Until recently, Comcast had refused to admit that it has set limits, even though the company has been shown, definitively, to be delaying peer-to-peer traffic. Although 250 gigabytes is indeed a large amount of data, on-demand video and other applications continue to push usage. Comcast's congestion problem should be dealt with by providing more capacity, not by blocking traffic. What happens if you wash your cell phone? My elder daughter washed hers the other day. The phone was in a pocket when she dropped her clothes into the washer. By the time she realized what had happened, the phone had gone through the wash cycle and through most of the rinse cycle. When she brought it to me, it was vibrating. I quickly removed the battery and packed it in a container of rice for a couple of days. Rice is a decent desiccant, but when I put the battery back in, nothing happened. No vibration. Nothing when I pressed the power button. Well, maybe something. The keyboard backlight was on, and I couldn't turn it off, nor could I turn the phone on. So it was time for a new phone, but I really didn't want to extend the contract anymore, and my daughter didn't want to spend $200 for a new phone. If you want the free phone, you have to tell the cellular company you'll continue to pay them for another two years. Do I really need to spend more than $100 a month for a phone service that I rarely use? Fortunately, there was somebody at a T-Mobile retail store who told my daughter that she could simply go to a nearby Target store, buy one of those $40 pay-as-you-go phones, and put the SIM card from her now super-clean but non-functional phone into that device. And no, I'm not going to identify which store that was. A few minutes later, my phone rang, just checking to see if it worked, she said. Problem solved. No thanks to T-Mobile corporate, but with a tip of my hat if I wore a hat, to the employee who clued her in. Thanks. And thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of August 31st, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.